This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and today we are going to do a philosophical currents episode about anti-Semitism. Joining me now is philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. Jack, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I did, and I hope you had a Happy Hanukkah. I did, and it was lovely. My wife and daughter actually weren't supposed to be here, um, but they they moved their flight, and so we were all together. And it was a particularly important year to celebrate because, as you know, anti-Jewish sentiment is in the air. It's on TV. It's everywhere we look these days. And so to, to be together as a family was particularly important. Right. The Anti-Defamation League has come out with a number of studies lately that uh, shows that we are in at least a five-year upswing of increased uh, attacks and rhetoric uh, relating to anti-Semitism, with 2021 being the highest year of reported incidents in uh, recent history. I know there is no easy answer to this, Jack, but the history of anti-Semitism is very long. Is there really something similar to a starting point? Well, there is. And people aren't going to like it. But let me take a step back and say anti-Semitism is different, I think, than a lot of the other prejudices. Islamophobia, the dislike of Muslims is fairly political and actually kind of recent. Misogyny, sexism, that has a biological component in the sense that the the need to control women is about controlling reproduction. It's about uh, having a certain kind of power over the community. Obviously, racism is structural in the sense that it's about power, it's about guilt, it's about history. And it's for many people keeping that kind of class structure and race structure in place, even if you pretend you're not. What makes anti-Semitism different is that it's written into Western culture. It is entirely intertwined with the last 2,000 years, and there's absolutely no way to separate it. In fact, Western culture is anti-Semitic in the way that America is inherently racist. It doesn't mean that any individual is racist. It doesn't mean that any individual is anti-Semitic. It's that you can't tell the story of the West without telling the story of the hatred and the exploitation and the abuse of Jews. So just as a random example, um, those of you who watch the great British breaking show, (laughs) every once in a while they'll do a Jewish food and they always get it wrong. And it always, it's a big, you know, to do on the Jewish Twitter sphere and stuff like that. Why? Because Jews were expelled from England for 300 years. For 300 years, Jews were not allowed in the country. And so it doesn't have that tradition of food, that tradition of intertwining Jewish tastes and Jewish rituals with the culinary rituals of, say, India, which is part of England because of the colonization of India. And that's just a silly example, but it just shows that You can't even talk about the Great British Baking Show without at least some touchstone on anti-Semitism. So can you put a finer point on the original question of, of where did it really start? It starts with the birth of Christianity. And it starts with the birth of Christianity because, in part, 
Christians were a segment of an outgrowth of Jews who wanted to replace Jews. Christianity is what's called a supersessionist religion. And the goal of Christianity, it's evangelical. It's, it, it, it wants to convert other people. And in the very, very beginning, it wanted to convert Jews. So here is how John, the gospel according to John, talks about Jews. This is John 8, 44, 45, for those who are you know, playing at home. This is Jesus talking to the Jews. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to do what your father desires. He was a slayer of men from the very beginning, and he had no place in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is expressing his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It is because I tell the truth that you will not believe me. So the very founding document of Christianity starts off by calling Jews Satan, lies and having no place with the truth. Move 1,200 years to uh, uh, Martin Luther, when Martin Luther writes an essay uh, called On the Jews and Their Lies, where he says, we should burn all the synagogues down to the ground, bury a, dig a hole, put the ashes of the synagogues in the holes, cover the holes with dirt so there is no treatment, there's no record of Jews left on the history of the earth. So the foundation of Christianity, the foundation of Protestantism is inherently intertwined, and you're not going to take a verse out of John. John is what it is. You're not going to ignore Martin Luther's role. And so what happens then is you've got 2,000 years, you have institutions, you have entire nations built on this assumption, and it becomes a fundamental part of the worldview. Can a person be a good evangelical Christian and also not be anti-Semitic then? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think the reality, of course, is that we pick and choose religion, right? We pick and choose elements of religion. And I think that as people become more sophisticated, as people learn to live with folks who are different, then you recognize that there are parts of your religion that maybe you're not too proud of or maybe that you don't want to hold on to. Now, there are folks who will want to reinterpret things and say, well, that isn't what John was saying, but that doesn't work because it is what John was saying. If you have to hold the position that your religion is 100% right and 100% literally true, then there's no way around it other than just being a bad adherent of your religion. But if you can accept the fact that times change, politics change, interpretations change, attitudes change, then this doesn't condemn anyone to any form of hatred. Uh, Christianity is a religion built on love. And so the question is, can you extend that love to Jews and other folks? And can you extend that love without meaning? I love you so that you will become like me. Right. The word charity is Latin for caritas. And what it means is Christian love. Right. So if you give Jews charity, in a sense, you are putting Christ's love on them, which isn't exactly what Jews want. So if you can figure out how to have a modern sense of the world and live together with people and interpret your religious truths in a way that accepts the moral insights of the last 2,000 years that we have grown and evolved to understand, then absolutely you can be a good evangelical and you can be a good anybody without hating anybody at all. Jack, as we look at the continuum 
of anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions. There are jokes like, oh, the Jews are controlling Hollywood. There are Twitter comments from people like Kanye West, and there are actual attacks that have killed people. How do you spot anti-Semitism before it rises to a level like that? So the first thing that comes to mind, actually, is that they're not jokes, right? That they are things that people really believe in. But I'll counter it with a joke. Dave Chappelle said recently on Saturday Night Live, he said, uh, yes, there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood. There are also a lot of black people in Flint, Michigan. It doesn't mean they're in charge. And I actually thought that that was a really brilliant way of describing the fact that there is a long history of Jewish entertainers. And Jewish entertainers and Jewish executives have places in Hollywood. But Count the names. Look at the names on any movie, whether it's a blockbuster movie like a, a Marvel movie or a Martin Scorsese film. Count how many Jewish names there are. Right? Count how many Jewish executives are. It's just not true. And if it were true, then Jewish portrayal in movies and televisions would be incredibly different. Almost every single Jew that is portrayed on television is some variation of Woody Allen. Um, Seinfeld mm. is a variation of Woody Allen. Ben Stiller is a variation of Woody Allen. What's the difference? The difference between Woody Allen and Ben Stiller is that in Woody Allen's own films, he's a, he's neurotic, he's crazy, he's a bit of a uh, you know a character, but he always wins. Right? It's his film. He's the Jew, and he wins. In Ben Stiller's film, he always loses. Right. Because he's the Woody Allen who hates himself. Mm -hmm. Ben Stiller is an example. I personally think of a Jew who is full of self-hatred. And that's how you can tell that Jews don't don't control Hollywood, because when there is someone who is literally in charge, like Woody Allen, the Jews are laughed with as opposed to laughed at. And instead, on television, in movies, the Jews are always somehow othered, somehow the court jester, somehow neurotically navigating the world in a way that makes them distant and somehow less empathetic. And that's the legacy of anti-Semitism. The legacy of anti-Semitism among the horrendous legacy is to interfere with the empathy that someone has, even if they don't know why they're not identifying with them, even though a viewer might not say, well, I'm not Jewish and Jerry Seinfeld is a Jew and so I can't identify with them. I mean, I think a lot of my students, right, I'm the first Jewish person that most of my students meet. In most parts of the country, if I walk into a classroom and they see Professor Weinstein, everyone in the room will know that I'm Jewish just from my name. My students, completely clueless. They don't know at all. Uh, no reason for them to know. They're, you know, four and a half Jews in the entire state, right? There's, um, there's no reason for them to know. But if they were to watch Seinfeld or some other show and not know that the character was Jewish, they would still have that inability to empathize because the, the, the stereotypes and the tropes and the, and, and the way the characters are portrayed are all subconscious in such a way that it's designed to prevent that kind of empathy. Mm -hmm. 
On your own Facebook page some months ago, you called Kanye West having more Twitter followers than there are Jews in the world as an example of a pure threat. What did you mean by that phrase? Well, first of all, let me say that Kanye West is a moron, right? I mean, he's very, very, very talented, and he's very good at what he did, but he's not very good at what he's doing because he doesn't know anything about history. And so to really exploit anti-Semitism, you have to have a little more sophisticated view. But here's the reality. The reality is at the time that he was banned, Kanye West had 14 million followers. There are 13 million Jews in the world. That is a feeling of being surrounded. That is a feeling of being outmanned, outgunned. So even if we were only going to look at Kanye West's followers and not, you know, all the other countries in the world, not not, you know, not the people who live in the city next door, just that there are more people in that list than there are Jews. How can someone feel comfortable when they are outnumbered by that and the leader of that group? Now, I'm not saying that people are blindly following Kanye West, but I'm but I'm making a point, which is. The leader of that group is telling people not to like this group. And if they're, it's, if they're 14 to 13 million, well, they're going to win. So I think people have to – so let me go back for a second to, to, to give another illustration. This last week was Hanukkah. And traditionally in Hanukkah, you light candles for eight nights. And historically, you put the menorah, which is the candelabra, in the window. And one of the reasons you do that is to let people know that if they're Jewish, that this is a Jewish household and that they can uh, seek refuge in the household if you want. Well, all over the United States, which historically has been the safest country in the world for Jews, despite all of its problems, all over this country, Jews are not putting menorah in the windows anymore because they're afraid, because they're afraid of people throwing rocks through their windows, which has happened to our house. They're afraid of people drawing swastikas on the sidewalk, which has happened in front of our house. They're afraid of becoming, of making themselves vulnerable to violence of a community that vastly outnumbers them. And so I could say being one of a handful of Jews in Grand Forks is feeling outnumbered, and it certainly is by a vast majority, but I don't think that that's as arbitrary as the Kanye West followers, because the Kanye West followers span the world as Jews span the world. And so I feel like it's a more graphic illustration, because also most of our neighbors are incredibly kind, loving people who know we're Jewish and who fully respect us and want us in their lives. So I wouldn't want to sully the name of Grand Forks, and I wouldn't want to insult my neighbors by saying something that isn't true. Yet Kanye West has a profound voice, and he was a respected role model for years and years and years, and he is an artist of tremendous skill. And I don't think we should stop listening to his music because he's turned out to be a dope. I think we should value what he has to give us that makes the world a better place, which is high quality art mm -hmm. and try to educate people and maybe teach him and maybe give him the proper medication so that he can get back to being a, contr a positive contributor to the world as opposed to a negative one.
Jack, I read a report from the Anti-Defamation League, and it finds that 36% of millennials don't know that 6 million Jewish people were murdered during the Holocaust. What are the ramifications of young people not knowing history and and of other people denying the Holocaust? So I'm going to say something a little controversial and unexpected, which is, in a sense, I don't think it's a massive deal that that many people don't know the Holocaust happened only because I think at least that many people probably don't know very much about the civil rights movement either. I think that most Americans don't know American history Mm -hmm. and most and most Americans certainly don't know world history. You know, ask people why there's a Canada and they don't they don't know the answer. Right. And the answer, of course, is all of the loyalists who lost the Revolutionary War who were in the colonies, moved north and founded a new colony, which was Canada. Right. People don't know that either. And I think it's important to know that. What's really important to understand about the Holocaust? First, yes, we should teach it and we should teach about the consequences. But we should also teach that it was the inevitable consequence of the industrialization of a process of hate that had been going on for, at that point, not quite 2,000 years. So let me illustrate what I mean. St. Augustine is the founder of Christian theology. Paul creates the church. Augustine creates the theology. Augustine had a problem, which is that he knew that if the Jews were successful in life, that it would suggest that you could be... uh, have a good life and not be a Christian. So he wanted to get rid of the Jews, but he also needed the Jews present to be the witness to Christ's miracle. So he famously said, and this is an exact quote, although it's in English, not not Latin. He said, let them live, but don't let them thrive. And what he meant by that was do not erase the Jews from earth, but make their lives really, really hard. And so one of the legacies of that was in Italy, in Venice, taking all of the Jews and putting them in a very small area by the ironworks and making sure they weren't allowed to leave, that they weren't allowed to make very much money, that they weren't allowed to be happy or healthy, and to surround that area with an iron fence. What is the uh, word for for ironworks, for iron uh, fence? Uh, Getty. So the word ghetto actually comes from the place where the Jews were forced to live. And because the Christians weren't allowed to charge interest of one another, they forced the Jews into positions where they had to give loans and manage loans. And the Jews would stand out in front of these red benches uh, around, I I I think it was the city hall in Venice, and sort of manage money in a way that Christians weren't allowed to manage money. It was the only thing that they were allowed to do. Well, the, the, the Italian word for bench is banchi. The word bank comes from that process of forcing the Jews to be at these red benches and deal with money. So the word ghetto, the word bank, all this stuff is the history of anti-Semitism in our language. So you have all of these attempts, these expulsions, these massacres, these pogroms, and then you get the Industrial Revolution. And what the Industrial Revolution allows you to do is do these tasks that are 
very hard to do and make them very easy to do in the mass number. And that's really all the Nazis did. All the Nazis did was take what had been going on for 2000 years and apply the lessons of the Industrial Revolution. And then they were able to kill Jews by vast numbers because technology improved and therefore killing improved. And so part of the Part of the mistake that people get, and one of the reasons why it doesn't bother me as much that uh, young people don't know that much about the Holocaust or they don't know that it happened, is because we even teach the Holocaust in a very artificial way. We, we teach there was this country. It was a great country. Along came this crazy man, Hitler. Somehow they persuaded people uh, to hate the Jews. The people who didn't hate the Jews, they threatened to kill them. So they all killed the Jews. And then Hitler died and everything returned to normal. And of course, that's not at all what happened. What happened was the Holocaust was an inevitable result of a Germanic and a Western culture that was just looking for new ways to hate. And that's, I think, what people should learn because it helps them understand not only the hatred of Jews, but the hatred of women and the hatred of African-Americans and the hatred of foreigners and the hatred of other people, because you have to understand that I hate you isn't an opinion, right? People will say, oh, I can believe that Jews are bad people. Hating people isn't a belief. It's an ideology. You don't have freedom of, you don't have freedom of ideology. You have freedom of speech. You have freedom of expression. You have freedom of opinion. But to teach someone to hate is to teach years and years and years of curriculum. And so when someone says the Jews control Hollywood, what they're doing is putting a lifetime of interpretation of two millennium of education into one sentence. And that's not an opinion or a belief. That's a fundamental posture in the world. And that's what we have to counter. Jack, the official definition of anti-Semitism is hostility toward or discrimination against Jews as a religious, ethnic, or racial group. We have been focusing on this as a faith, as a religion. Jack, are you white? <laughs> That's such a great question. Well, first of all, the idea of what we mean by a race comes out of the late 19th century, and it's, it's, it's genetic. It comes from German scientists, and, and, and it's all messed up. And also... Because in the modern world, culture and religion kind of get divided, I am Jewish by religion. I'm also Jewish by culture. Am I Jewish by race? Probably not. The state of Israel is different than the nation of Israel. The state mm -hmm. of Israel is, all, is, is the people in the Middle East right now. The nation of Israel are all of the Jews who've ever lived throughout time. And so in that sense, I'm part of the Jewish nationality. Now, White no longer means the color of skin, right? Because Italians were non-white for a while and Irish were non-white for a while. What white means is having a certain kind of power and having a certain kind of ease in the world and having a certain kind of, it gets called privilege and entitlement these days, but I don't like those terms because I think they're too loaded. Just a kind of benefit of the doubt that whiteness has. And in that sense, I don't think that Jews are white. In that sense, I think that the moment you are outed as a Jew, your life is harder. And even in the best of circumstances, it's often very difficult to know whether the criticism that you are receiving comes from 
your Jewishness or comes from something else, right? Jews have historically been excluded from colleges. Jews are seriously under threat uh, of the religious groups in the United States and, and in the world, actually. More uh, hate crimes against Jews are committed than any other religion. And that is not whiteness. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chesterford's Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure as always.